0: Now, presenting live from 401 Maplewood Drive in Jupiter, Florida. Join our family every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m. Today's message brought to you by Pastor Ben Pierce. And so I want to welcome you today to the last uh, message of the series, Heart for the House. Can we welcome all of those joining us by video? So glad you guys have tuned in. I want to invite you to come and be a part of a service, live and in person, right here at Generation Church. So, you know, we started looking in this uh, series at three people, uh, Ezra... And Haggai and Nehemiah we're going to talk about today. And these three guys, they lived out their purpose in their day 2,500 years ago. When I started this series, I started talking about the role of a prophet, a priest, and a king. And I know those words are a little abstract. We don't use those terms anymore uh, in everyday life, but the role of a prophet, priest, and a king still lives today. What God did in the Old Testament with prophets, priests, and a kings, he brought through to the New Testament. Scripture says that we are all priests. Scripture says that we are all prophetic to God. We are all kings in the kingdom of God. And so my goal in this series is to help us unlock who we are. Amen. Every single one of us are prophets, priests, and kings to some varying degree. It's the way God wired you. Now, for some of us, you will find that you are maybe dominant in one area or the other. Maybe you are more prophetic in your life, or maybe you're more kingly in your life, the way you view things. If if your life is, your your mind is driven to like, what is God saying to my generation? Then you're probably more dominant in a prophetic gifting. If your life is is, uh, wrapped up in how do we worship God and what does that sacrifice look like, and you're just a lover of the church, then you probably are dominantly gifted to be a priest. If, if you're the kind of person, you're always thinking about budgets. How can we expand this ministry? How can we fund epic beauty? How can we build another building to house all the people? You know, how can we do all the things that we, we need to do to reach a generation? You're probably kingly in your gifting. And so I pray that the Lord unlocks uh, this for you. I've had a bunch of people come up to me and just say, you know, through this series, Pastor Ben, I've really figured out who I am. Really figured out what my gifts and my talents and my callings are, and I pray that he will do the same thing for you. So here it is. Nehemiah uh, is who we're going to talk about today. So as the story goes, Haggai was this guy 2,500 years ago. He was in a city not too different than our own city, West Palm Beach. It was a ruined city. The walls were broken down, and people's lives were messed up and in ruin. People were in pain, and they were hurting. And this guy, Haggai, he heard a word from God, and he had this prophetic word that God gave him that said, said, let's rebuild the temple. And so Haggai was obedient to that. And then this guy Ezra came. He was just a normal, average, everyday guy, just like Haggai. And Ezra came along, this normal guy, and he heard God speak to him and say, well, now that the temple has been restored through Haggai, now we need to learn how to worship. And so Ezra was instrumental, just a normal guy, instrumental in getting the people of God to bring a sacrifice of their worship effectively to God. And as the story goes, this guy, Nehemiah, shows up on the scene. It's a 110-year span. And this guy, Nehemiah, shows up on the scene, and God starts working in him as it related to his gifting. And his gifting was kingly. He was a government worker. How many people work for the government out there? I used to kind of like raise their hand like this. It's okay. It's all right to work for the government. I used to work for the government. I used to work for the Medical College of Virginia. I was a state employee for the state of Virginia. And, um, and so Nehemiah is just a normal, average, everyday guy that works for the government. He is the king's cupbearer. What that means is, is he sips all the wine for the king to make sure that nobody poisoned it first. And so he's just a government guy. And uh, God used him in his kingly giftings, working in the king's court to completely change a generation. Some some of you guys here today are gifted in that 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 mode. You are kingly inside of you, and God wants to unlock for you what He has in store for your life, so that you can you can do something great in your life. You can make your days count for something. You can make a mark on eternity. It is this time of Socrates. And it's just a few years before Plato and Aristotle and Alexander the Great and Nehemiah, this government worker, is just stirred up. He hears about his, his city, the, the, the city of his fathers, that it's in ruins. And, and he goes to his boss, the king, and he begins to have a conversation. And, and he begins to ask the king, you know, can I, can I have some time to, to rebuild the city of my fathers? And he has this conversation He began to to step into something that was foreign to him. And maybe for some of you today, God's gonna ask you to step into some things that are foreign from you. Nehemiah followed that call that was on the inside of his heart and he did something amazing. you think about what they accomplished. Those walls were eight feet thick. They accomplished it in 52 days. I think there were 12 or so gates that they had to rebuild. There's some pictures that'll come up behind me just so you can get an idea for the scope. So a government worker, 52 days, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but 12 years on I-95 is a long time to patch a piece of road, right? He did something great in a short amount of time because he, he listened to what God was doing inside of him. You can see here there's a, a, a lady standing in the far corner and a lady standing on top of the wall. You can see the magnitude of the width of the walls, there's a, a, uh, an area called the Broad Wall that they built that today stands 2,500 years later because one man stepped up in his, his kingly gifting. And you can see the city is built around it. This is part what they would call the, the Jesuit Step Wall. And this is part of what Nehemiah built. They just uncovered it just a few years ago. And so they've uncovered this. And you say, Pastor Ben, why are you showing me these pictures from, from Jerusalem? I'm showing you this because one man heard God One ordinary average guy stepped out of his comfort zone into God's purpose and he did and built something that lasts 2,500 years later. There's a lasting memorial of what he did. And I believe that God has presented us as a church, the opportunity in our generation to do something that lasts. I don't want to be just another good church. I want to make a mark on eternity. There are thousands of good churches. There's 482,000 churches in America alone. Some of them are making their mark and some of them are not. I don't want to just be a good church. We have a great church here with great people. We're one of the fastest growing churches in town. But man, I want to make a mark on eternity. You think about Nehemiah's life, it ended up in Scripture. How many people didn't make it into Scripture? How many people's stories were just mediocre? See, we have an opportunity as a church to be the story that didn't make it. Or we have the opportunity as a church that God called us here to make a mark in our area in West Palm Beach and Jupiter and Hope Sound. And that what we came together and did here would be something that they talk about in heaven. I want to stir you up today. I want, I want to spur you on to do something great with your days, just like Nehemiah did. Today, I want to talk to you about unleashing the king inside of you. You're all called to be prophets, priests, and kings. How do you unleash the kingliness inside of your life? You know, kings are, are stereotypically the people that are wealthy. They're, they're resource people. It's people like Donald Trump. Do I mean, Donald Trump's in the audience today. You know, in our minds, we kind of think that, you know, these these people that are kingly, they're like the Donald Trumps of the world. They got all of these resources and money. And then just here am I, just a lonely old pastor in Jupiter, Florida. How can I make an impact like Donald Trump? Well, here's the reality. You may not have the natural resources of Donald Trump, but you have the kingly resources of Jesus Christ living on the inside of you. And you have the ability to make an impact spiritually like you are a Donald Trump. Here's the thing about kings. Kings are resource people. Kings just think about resources. And because we are all called to be kings, all of our resources are important. Your resources may be like the the woman in the gospels that gave two mites, but her gift was better than those who gave more because it was the right gift. It was what she had. It was her sacrifice. So maybe you don't have Donald Trump's resources, but your gifts are just as important See, the heart of a king is not what I have or how much I have. The heart of a king is how can I use whatever I have to make a mark. You know, where there is a a vision, there has to be provision. Part of us that is kingly is interested in provision. The kingly part of us wants to provide a place for people to worship. The kingly part of us wants to invite people to church. The kingly part of us uh, you know, wants to have air conditioning in the summertime. You know, we, we want to provide things that allow people to come and experience the Lord. And so that kingly part of us is, is, is uh, the thing that drives us to provide a platform for ministry to happen. And every single one of us play a part in that. Where there's a vision, there has to be a provision. And when you begin to break this word pro-vision down, it breaks into two words. It breaks into the word vision and the word pro. The word vision is what we see ourselves doing. It's, it's what God has placed inside of us to, to take the city for the Lord, to make it impact, to, to plant multiple campuses around South Florida, to, to do all of the things, epic beauty, all of the things that we're doing around town. That's the vision. But what is the pro Well, pro is, uh, it's just simply the before part. Pro, pre, they're the same words. That means that if there is a vision, there has to be a before the vision part. And the before the vision part, when you put it together, it equals provision. What am I saying? I'm saying that there are things that we need to be doing today, right now. And as we do the things that are upon us today, it gives us the ability to accomplish the vision tomorrow. Today is the before things. Right now is the, the pre-time, the, the pro-time. It's the time to come together as one body of believers and do something amazing for the Lord in our city. And when we do that, God gives us the provision. You know, it always requires resources to, uh, to accomplish a vision. It always requires a provision to accomplish the vision. Unapologetically, it just requires that we come together. You know, how do you build a wall? Brick by brick. You ever seen a wall with a brick missing? Well, number one, it doesn't look so stable. And number two, it has a point of entry. It has a weakness in it. If you take that wall that has a brick missing out of it and you go and you start to, to pull on the bricks around that missing brick, guess what? You can begin to pull the second brick out not too difficult. You can begin to pull another brick out. And before you know it, you can completely pull an entire section of a wall down because one brick is missing. Listen, every single one of us, the scripture says, are lively stones being built together into a spiritual house. We're we're bricks in a sense that build the walls of our city. And when one of us is missing, we leave a gap. When one of our resources, whether it's a big brick or a little brick, is missing out of that wall, it's an entry point for the devil. It's an entry point for weakness. It's a place where the wall can be broken down. Every single one of us is critical and important. So unapologetically, it takes us all. Every single one of us working together. And that's what happened in Nehemiah's day. They all came together. Do you know that you are the primary instrument of God to bring resources for the kingdom? Scripture says that in Luke 6:38 that if we give it'll be given back to us pressed down shaken together running over will men give back to you. In that whole area where God blesses people it never says that God gave anything. Men gave, God multiplied what was given and then he used other men to give back to that person. We are the conduits of God's resources. You know, sometimes we kind of sit around and we wait for these miracles to happen. Amen. But God just wants to use us one brick at a time. He just wants to use us line upon line, precept upon precept. And I see it in the church world all the time. You know, it's like we have this great opportunity and we need to raise $6 million in six weeks. And then you hear the crickets. Crickets. What I'm talking to you about today is as we begin to develop who we are as kings, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, we begin to prepare in the early days for what God has for us in the future, and we don't have to lay heavy burdens on our backs. One of my life phrases that I hold so dearly to me is preparation time is never wasted time. It's never wasted time. Anything that you do preparing today always turns out to benefit you tomorrow. And I want to spur us as a church to prepare for what God has for us in 2014. I have some things that I'm going to roll out in January of 2014 that are going to blow your mind. That the Lord has put on our heart that God wants us to accomplish in this next year. And I want us to be ready for it. I want us to to be prepared for it. So, this ordinary average guy named Nehemiah, he tapped into his kingly calling and he changed an entire generation. If you're following along with your notes today, I have four fill ins for you. Number one, a heart for the house begins with compassion to rebuild a city. A heart for the house begins with a compassion to rebuild a city. Nehemiah said this in chapter one, verse three, it says, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province, they are there in great distress and reproach and the wall of their city, Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Verse four. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. You know, there was another man who wept in scripture. His name is Jesus. He wept over the same city. Nehemiah wept because the walls were broken down. Jesus wept because their hearts had grown cold. Nehemiah had something happen inside of him. He had this compassion that began to grow inside of him. I would call it a Jesus-like compassion. And if we are going to do what God has called us to do in this city, and you're going to do what God has called you to this church to do, there's got to be some compassion that develops inside of us. There's got to be something that we we do when we look out and we see the women who are trapped in the adult entertainment industry that Melissa ministers to through Epic Beauty, that that there's something in us that sheds a tear for them. When we look at that. West Palm Beach and all the people that are destitute of even things like daily food, that that something happens inside of us. There's a compassion that wells up inside of us and we share what we have with them. When we look at people in Kennedy Estates... We've ministered there and done back-to-school stuff for years. And, and we build our walls around these areas of town and La- Limestone Creek and Kennedy Estates and different places like that so we don't have to think about it. But I'm here to tell you God wants to stir some compassion in our heart for our own area, our own city. Right. Now, let me break down this word compassion for you because compassion gets, it gets lumped in with other words like sympathy. Compassion gets lumped in with other words like empathy. You know, with sympathy, I, I, can, um, I, can, I can feel your pain. I can, I can look at you and, and sympathize with what you're going through. And, and I, can, I can hurt for you. And I, I can, inside of my heart, I can feel bad for you. Or I could empathize with you. I, I could get this emotional connection with what you're going through. And I could empathize. I, I could feel what you feel. But compassion is not feeling what you feel. And compassion is not feeling sorry for what you're going through. Compassion by its very nature has with it attached an action. See, I can sympathize, but I don't have to do anything. I can empathize, but I can empathize from a distance. But compassion requires me to begin to act. When you take the word compassion and you break it apart into its root words, its two words, C-O-M, come and passion, Come just simply means with. And passion means enthusiasm or passion. See, I can sympathize, but I don't have to come with you. I can empathize, but I don't have to do anything for you. But compassion requires me to be with you in enthusiasm and passion for what you're going through. And when Jesus looked out at the city of Jerusalem, he looked out at that place and he didn't sympathize. And he didn't empathize. He was compassionate. It means that he got up. And he began to do something for those people. And Nehemiah got up and he began to do something for the people. He went to the king and he said, King, I need to go. I need to move. He lived a posh life in the king's palace. You guys know we live a pretty comfortable life in Palm Beach County. When we travel, we go out of town, we get off the airplane. We're like, oh, it's kind of dirty up here. Nobody cuts the grass in the median. There's trash everywhere. I'm like, can I get back to Florida? <laughs> I mean, our municipalities, they keep this place like a paradise. But there's something about that posh living that we live in that, that, that causes us to disconnect from other people's pain. It causes us to, to not have the compassion that we need to have for other people. And Nehemiah had that compassion. He, he went to the king out of his posh life, his, his Palm Beach County kind of living. And he went to the king and he said, King, I've got to go to the city that's broken down. Will you let me go? Will you give me a leave of absence? And when he went to the king, that was something that he could have lost his head for. Not only his job, but he could have lost his life for that. You just don't go to the king in those days and ask those things. And then not only does he ask the king to be able to go and rebuild the ruined city, he asked the king to pay for it. (laughs) He was so compassionate about these people and the hurt and the pain that they were going through that he was willing to risk his own life. And he was so passionate about it that he was asking other people to help him accomplish it. I find that absolutely amazing. Nehemiah says this, In verse 6, he says, please, God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, night and day. We have a city to build here and it's not convenient and it's not comfortable to do. It's not convenient or comfortable to pray night and day. It's not convenient or comfortable for Nehemiah to move out of the king's palace and go to a city that's raided to a city that doesn't have walls, to a city that's in poverty, to a city that's broken down, to a city that spiritually is, is a void of anything of substance. A compassion, an action that causes us to actually get up out of our situation and go help somebody else. He says this, your servants, I pray for the children of Israel and your servants, and, and I confess the sin of the children of Israel which we have sinned, both my father's house and I have sinned. One version says that we have done corruptly. We have treated the Lord and his people corruptly. And as I begin to think about that, if you if you think about the word corruption, it is always tied to financial things. You ever notice that? I mean, is there ever something that is labeled corrupt that doesn't have some kind of financial misdealing in it? Those two things are like peas and carrots. They walk hand in hand. And, and so what Nehemiah is saying here is he's saying, we just didn't sin, we were corrupt. I've sat in the king's palace while my people die. And I, weren't, I, I was not a person who brought my finances to the king of kings. I haven't brought my resources to rebuild the ruined city. I sat in the palace while the people hurt. And he said, well, I have sinned. And I have to repent of that corruption. You know, things don't change over 2,500 years. We, we look at just the church globally and kind of the same thing happens. Our world is in poverty. And our resources are pooled. And what do we really do with them? I mean, if you really break it down... We are way, way over-resourced in order to meet the needs of our world. And the world has turned to every other opportunity to do it because the church has not stood up and done what it's supposed to do. So now you have government programs that are trying to meet the needs that the church was originally tasked by Jesus to meet. It's time that we stand up just like Nehemiah and we have a little compassion And we begin to bring our resources and we begin to do something great for our generation. Number two, a heart for the house is compelled to do big things. A heart for the house is compelled to do big things. Nehemiah 2 and 5. Nehemiah said, I said to the king, If it pleases you, king, and your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. He wasn't compelled to just send an offering. He wasn't compelled to just pray for them. It's easy to step back and say, I'm going to pray for those people in my city that are hurting. I'm going to pray for those marriages that are broken apart. But it's another thing to have compassion enough, to be active enough, to go to those families and say, hey, can I take you guys out to dinner? Come on, can I love on you? It's easy to step back and just say, you know, I could do something from back here. But I want you to be in in your heart today. I want you to be inspired enough not to just do what you can do from a back seat. That's not big. Anybody can do things from the back seat. I want you to be compelled to do something big with your life, something that lasts, something that makes a mark on eternity. And that's what happened with Nehemiah. He said, I could stay here in the palace, but I want to make my life count for something. So therefore, I'm going to pack my stuff up and I'm going to go to where people are hurting. And I'm going to invest myself in that, that I may rebuild the city. Verse seven, furthermore, I said to the king, and if it pleases you, king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass till I come to Judah or Jerusalem. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber and beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple, for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God that was upon me. He was so compelled to do something big that he actually was asking the king to fund it. Let me kind of break that down in natural terms. We're so excited about the vision that God is doing right here. And we're not just looking at our own resources, but we're looking, how can other people partner with us? We have a family in the church, twice a year they come to us and they say, what projects are you working on? What's happening at Epic Beauty? Because our company will match donations that we give. And so they specifically reach out and they work those things out. I'm telling you that there is a lot of opportunity in our area to make a mark if we will be compelled to reach out of our own selves. Go beyond what you feel and think that you can do and see if God doesn't move on the heart of a king in your life. See, if God doesn't do something miraculous, Nehemiah wasn't just trying for just enough. He wanted to make a big impact. Number three, a heart for the house works in cooperation with others. It works in cooperation with others. Chapter two, verse 18. And I told them that the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me, So he's telling all the people in Jerusalem of all the great things that God had done, that the king was going to fund it, that all of these things were happening. They brought all of the things that had been stolen from the temple previously. They brought it all back to Jerusalem, all these things. He told the people who lived in Jerusalem who were in ruins. And this is what they said, let us rise up and let us build. And they set their hands to this good work. Now chapter 3 reveals something very interesting in the book of Nehemiah. It's a little bit uh, of a, a thick thing to read, but it goes through and it lists name by name, organization by organization, business by business, tribe, tongue, people, priest, Levite, families, friends, over 40 different groups came together to rebuild that city. There was such a show of unity in that, that they were able to accomplish something that should have taken years in the matter of two months. We are better together. We are better together. When we come together in unity and we are working for the same goal, we're all working for the same things. We can accomplish in a short amount of time uh, an amazing feat. Now think about this. A 110-year span from Haggai, Ezra, and Nehemiah. 110 years. That's a long time. Haggai prophesied for four months of those 110 years. Ezra taught them how to worship God for 12 months out of those 110 years. And Nehemiah built the walls in two months, 52 days. In less than two years out of 110 years, the work was accomplished. Why did it take 110 years? You know, God doesn't hold anything back from us. Every gift that we need for life and godliness is made available. God would do whatever we wanted to do. He would have us reach as many people as we want to reach. He's not the one who limits what we do as a church. We are the people. We are the one who set the flow by how much we engage. Are you compelled to do something big? Or do you just want to live status quo? Are you compelled to, to be committed and, and be in unity? You know, it was in the upper room in the second chapter of Acts where 120 people were gathered together in unity, in one accord. And it was in that place of unity that God's power was poured out on the earth. And that's exactly what happens when, when we get unified. God's power is poured out in this place. We are better together. You know, statistically in churches around America, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people do 80% of the giving. 20% of the people do 80% of the serving. 20% of the people do 80% of the evangelism. 20%, a small fraction of the overall body of people, accomplish 80% of the mandate. I want you to dream with me for just a second. What if, what if you were a part of a church that 80% of the people served? What if you were a part of a church that 80% of the people gave and tithed and just did their part? What if you were a part of a church that 80% of the people invited somebody? What, what if you came into a place where 80% of us were all on team, on mission, co-laboring with Jesus at the same time? What, what happens in that kind of environment? I'm going to tell you what happens in that kind of environment. When an entire church turns the corner and the entire church becomes a team, the only thing that can happen at that point is God has to send you more people. He has to bring more people. And if you want to reach your city, you want to make your mark, you need to get on team somewhere. You need to find a place. Because God's not going to send us more people when 20% are doing everything. Because he's waiting on the other 80% to get engaged and to get involved. Imagine with me what we could do. This church would triple. When you look at the book of Acts, that's what you see. You see these people and 120 people were on team. It wasn't 20% of the 120 people in that upper room praying that were excited about Jesus. Jesus. It was 100%. And that 100% of those 120 people came down out of that upper room out of praying and fasting for their city. And 3,000 people were added to the church that day in one message. That's the way it's supposed to be. And then the next week, 5,000 more people. Because out of those 3,000 people that gave their lives to the Lord that first day, it wasn't 20% of them that got excited to engage in on team. It was a vast majority of them. Scripture says that they were in each other's houses daily, breaking bread, and they were in the temple on a weekly basis. They were committed to it. And you see that by the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, that the world had been completely turned upside down in the matter of just a few years. The world had been turned upside down in the matter of a few years. We are better together. Number four, a, house, a heart for the house is committed to see the work completed. We are committed. So we, we have this compassion inside of us that drives us to action. We're not looking at a distance at somebody and saying, oh, poor pitiful you. We're compassion. We're doing something about it. We, we're compelled to make a mark on eternity, to do something big and not live mediocre. We're cooperating together in high levels of unity And we're committed to see the thing finished. We're committed to see it. Nehemiah says this in chapter four, verse six. It says, so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half of its height for the people had a mind to work. I love that phrase. The people had a mind to work. There was something that that switched inside. They had a mind to get it completed. They had a mind to see that their generation was gonna do something amazing. They had a mind. What does that really mean? They had a mind to work. Well, the other side of that brain, if you will, is that they were unwilling to let anything stop them. They had a mind to work, and because of their mind to work, they were unwilling to let anything stand in the way. And this is what happens, and this is the way it always works. Verse 7, now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Amorites, the Ashdites, and the Mennonites, and all the other people came, that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored, and the gaps were beginning to be closed. And those people became very angry, and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Isn't that the way it goes? Like you're trying to do something great for God, and all of a sudden your haters show up. Up, drinking Haterade. <laughs> you know, you pour your life into something, and you're just trying to make an impact, and somebody's like, well, why do you do it that way? You know, you're trying to serve coffee in the cafe and change a person's life with beans, right? And then they, they drink your coffee, and you're like, that tastes like motor oil. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know how this works. I know that's funny, but... There's a, there's a serious spiritual thing that happens in those types of environments. All of a sudden, this little seed of, of hurt begins to grow because you made motor oil for somebody to drink. And it hurts a little bit, and there's an offense there, and, and you feel like the criticism is, is undue, and, and all of a sudden you think, oh, I'm not going to serve coffee to anybody. I think I'm just going to back out of this altogether. And all of a sudden, you've disconnected from your purpose, your destiny, you've disconnected from bigness, you've disconnected from from what God created you to do, all because somebody came and said something. Now listen, there's always a little truth to every criticism. Your critics have a place. You need to hear what they say, but you need to balance it out with what truth is. And you can't allow the criticism... completely derail what God's doing in your life. You have to be committed. You have to have a mind to get it done. You know, there's, there's gotta be this thing inside of us that has a heart to learn and do better. Like if somebody says, man, your motor oil coffee, that stuff's going to kill somebody. Instead of getting hurt and offended by that, we should sit back and say, well, well, help me. Help me make it better because I'm committed to the vision. Not committed to, to my feelings. I'm committed to, to, to the vision. I'm committed to reaching people. I'm committed to, to rebuilding the walls. So these guys came and they tried to create confusion. They were gripers. They were complainers. They, they were trying to, to stop the work because they knew. Now listen, this is what the devil does. When, when you are on the cusp of something big in your life, all hell breaks loose. Every time that you're about to move into a new level, you encounter a new devil. Every time that you're, you're trying to get into something that you've not been into before, you're trying to step into a new realm, you've got to press into it. You've got to push into it. You can't let people tear you down from that. Look at this, the book of Jude. I love this, this passage. It talks about people who try to tear us down. It says this, Jude chapter one, verse 16. It says, these people are gripers and complainers. Everybody say, gripers get the vipers. I like that. And complainers are not obtainers. Thank you. When when people come, like Sanballat, Tobiah, these guys, when they come to distract you off of the wall, when they come to complain and gripe, They're not going to get what they want. They're just there to mess you up. There's no good reason for it. And scripture says this, that, that those people, the gripers and complainers, they walk according to their own lusts and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before the apostles by our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in this last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. And these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Let me tell you something. As we begin to rebuild this city... Those people are going to come out. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be ready in your heart, committed in your heart. This is how Nehemiah and his guys handled it. Nehemiah 4, 17, my last scripture. It says, those who built the wall and those who carried burdens, they loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at the construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great and it is extensive and we are separated far from one another on the wall. So whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there and our God will fight for us. I love that picture that with one hand we're working on the kingdom and with the other hand we're girded about with a sword that protects the work that we are committed to see it done no matter what the naysayers say. You don't answer to the naysayers. You answer to Jesus. You answer to God. A trowel in one hand, a sword in the other committed to see A city rebuilt. That's what God has in store for us. You know, God asks us a question. He asked Nehemiah this question. It's a very simple question. He just said, Nehemiah, will you? Two simple words, will you? He didn't tell Nehemiah what he wanted him to do. All Nehemiah knew in chapter 1, verse 3, is that the walls were broken down, that the city was in ruins. And God just asks a simple question, Nehemiah, will you? And I believe God's asking us the same question today. As a church, Generation Church, will you? I haven't told you everything that I want you to do. If I gave you a glimpse of what I've called you to do, it would probably scare you. It would blow your mind. And so God gives us what we can handle Just a little bit of a vision here, a little bit of a vision there. And God's question is not, will you accomplish the end? His question is, are you just willing to get in the game? Are you just willing to get in the fight? Are you willing to do something amazing with your life? Will you? Nehemiah answered that question. He said, yeah, God, I will. He got on his camel or whatever he rode he went to Jerusalem and that's where he figured out what God wanted him to do he was committed before he knew what he was supposed to even do I want you to answer that question in your heart today will you will you be committed will you develop a greater trust for this house will you trust me to lead you into the future? Will you get behind Melissa and myself, our staff and our team leaders and, and work for the vision? Will, will you sacrifice something for the kingdom? Will you do something significant with your life? Will, will you engage in something that's inconvenient and uncomfortable? Will you commit your time, your talent, your treasure to rebuild a city that is in ruins spiritually? Will you simply pray and ask God how he wants to use you, how he wants to work through you this next year? That's the question. Will you? Will you answer the call that he gives you? Close your eyes. Let me pray for you. Father, I bless you today. Thank you, Lord, for this series, for this word. Father, I pray that the heart that we have for the house of God continues to expand and grow and flourish. Lord, I pray that we would answer in our own hearts the question, will we? Will we be committed? Will we be compassionate? Will we work in cooperation? Will we do the things that are necessary to make an eternal impact on our lives and on this generation? you know, part of what the Lord has placed in my heart is, how do we build for the future? How do we do what God wants us to do? And I talked about it a little bit at the beginning of this, that for every vision, there is a pro vision. That we have to do some things, a little here, a little there, line on line, precept on precept. And instead of putting big burdens on our backs, I want you to dream with me. What what if we as a church were in a position where we were already resourced, where when the opportunities come, instead of having to, to scramble in order to meet the opportunity, what if we were prepared for it already? What if we did these things in the early days so that when we get to those opportunities, we're able just to say, that's a great opportunity. Let's do it. So what the Lord has placed on my heart is for us as a church to begin to prepare a little here, a little there each month. And we would be intentional that we would step out of our comfort zone and into God's will for our lives.